I am Dr. Fernandez Falcón and this is the Mentors Podcast. In this episode, we will talk to Dr. James Tysinger. Though currently retired, Dr. Tysinger was the Vice Chair for Professional Development. He holds the Leonard G. Paul Professorship in Family and Community Medicine. He continues to be a very active member on the Department of Family and Community Medicine. Over the years, uh, our dearest Jim has been everything to everybody in the department. So here it is, and uh, we hope that uh, you like our conversation with Dr. Tysinger. Good afternoon, Dr. Tysinger. My name is Jordan Kamschmidt, and I have with me Dr. Pini Madawi and Dr. Christiane Falkblom. We would like to know just a little bit more about you, about what has made you you and, and what has gotten you to this point in your life and career. So what we'd like to do is start with our question of if you could speak to yourself at my level of training or my age, which we won't disclose, but um, you know, looking back, what would you tell yourself or someone in a similar you know, path? Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be specifically career related. What life advice is going to be most important if you had five minutes? I would say the first thing, if I were in your position, I would carefully consider my first job. In other words, put a lot of research and thought and certainly prayer into it because the first job you have can really set you up for great things but you have to be careful about pitfalls uh, knowing many residents who pass through the program here and other places one big issue is I'm about ready to graduate I'm anxious I want to go back to a certain area, I grab the first job that I find. That can work out well. On the other hand, if you sign a contract that really traps you, that's not a good thing. And it will ultimately cost you a lot of time, sweat, and anxiety, and potentially money. So I would say put a lot of time and effort into your job search. Have at least two options. Use an attorney approved by the TAFP to review your contract so you don't get trapped into a job that you really don't like and ultimately you're going to leave in a year or two after your contract is ready. Another thing that really made a major difference for me is to get a mentor who can help you on the job, adjust well to the environment, and prepare for next steps. It's scary once you get out of the program or leave a graduate program. So a good mentor can help you avoid pitfalls that can slow up your career, can help you think through 
job offers give you guidance on what things to consider. For example, do you like to teach? If so, you might want to go to a place that encourages teaching. If you like to teach and you're in a program or you're in a place where it's a high productivity type environment, the two are just incompatible. So think about your first job. What things about you do you want to come out in the job? What are your strengths? And then how can you take advantage of those in that position? And that will be a good position for you. So what was your first job? <laughs> My first job was I was in the military. I really enjoyed teaching. And my boss came and told me I need to, to, he needed to talk with me. And he offered me a job as a civilian. So I got out of the Army on Thursday and went back to work on Monday <laughs> in the same job. Oh my gosh. So that was a really easy transition. <laughs> when I got my doctorate, I really wanted to go to a place like a university or medical school. And I got a job offer, and I think I took an insufficient salary. In retrospect, they should have paid me more. And I could have probably negotiated for a better salary. Uh, the benefits were standard. It was interesting because I stayed there for five years. The people were great. The physicians, the basic scientists I worked with were just outstanding. I, I couldn't have enjoyed it anymore. But it was in a cold place, and I really didn't like cold places. So I had a position, or I went to a meeting, and I was looking to move, and I had several copies of my CV. So I was in a meeting in Chicago. It was cold, rainy, and windy. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, should I go to this meeting or not? It was in a different hotel about 12 blocks away. So I thought, why not? Lo and behold, while I was there, someone in the audience mentioned we're looking for an educator it was at the university of arizona and so afterwards i gave the person my cv was invited for an interview and he was really nice he was the boss of the uh, unit and so he said let me show you around the campus and so he said, well, I have to tell you something that might help your negotiation. Uh, we received 42 applications. We decided to interview one person. Oh, wow. And so think about that when you negotiate. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was very helpful. He could have not said anything. So it was a good place. I really grew there. I enjoyed it but it was really far from home. My wife's 
home is in, was in San Antonio, so I wanted to get back here, or at least to Texas. Mm -hmm. And so I got a job opportunity at UT Southwestern. And I got that because I had a friend who worked there, and she said, I'm going into private industry, do you want my job? So that worked out really well. Then my dream job, uh, I was sitting at my computer and I got this announcement from my uh, friend that said, job, great job opportunity. And I thought to myself, yeah, it's probably in some cold place that I don't want to go. <laughs> Lo and behold, it was San Antonio. So about five minutes later, my mentor from Arizona sent me an email saying, you need to apply for this job. So I talked with my boss at, San, at uh, UT Southwestern and said, I've got this great opportunity, I'm gonna apply. I applied, was interviewed, came here, and I wish I'd come here in my first job. Don't we all? <laughs> great, great environment, and it comes from the top. I was here for a year, and then the interim chair left, and Dr. Hyen came, mm -hmm. and he has really grown the department. Uh, really good approach in managing people and supporting people. I came here. I was awarded associate professor, then professor, and then tenure. So with his support, it really helped. I got to work with great people like Dr. Falcone, Dr. Oh, Nato, mm -hmm. great support people. Uh, Dr. Catnall, and if you work with great people, it's fun coming in every day. You may have a lot of work to do, but you leave refreshed every day, and you look forward to coming back. And so I still keep good ties and connections with the department because of that. So having the, the good people to be around and the work that drives you? Very much so. Well, one of our residents who graduated went to a place, signed a contract too fast, didn't have uh, anyone review it and within three months was just frustrated because she was working about 10 hours a day including Saturday the people in charge of the clinic were on her to increase her productivity and she liked to have relationships with patients and so she was miserable. She ended up quitting that and she found a family physician. They opened up a clinic and because she left before the end of her contract, uh, they had a clause that she couldn't practice within so many miles of their clinic. And so they ended up suing her and she lost the suit. But, She's very happy now. She got in a position where she really liked the people, liked the patients, and liked the speed of the practice. So I've always used her as a model. You 
don't be too eager to take a job. Make sure their salary, the benefits, and the working conditions are what you want. Otherwise, it could be a position that you want to leave. And longevity is my time here since 2000. I found the longer that you're in the place, the more you know people and the more connections you have to help other people uh, with the professional network. Alignment. Alignment, maybe? Alignment, sure. Right. So you found, so you went to this first job and they were not aligned. You, do you find that it's the amount of work or it's actually the alignment? Because I think that it's the alignment. They can throw all kinds of amounts of work to you, but if you're aligned with the objectives of that practice, if you feel that this is the place that you want to be in because they are your people, your tribe, that that's okay. That's okay, but you have to look at performance expectations, your salary, what is covered, what is not. In other words, you have to look at many factors for that alignment. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the work, it's the conditions, and, right. and the conditions are part of the realistic things, are the money and the, the expectations. Good. So, what made it? How did Jim got made? You told me once, I always remember, that you come from a small town. Yes. So we were talking about uh, how difficult it was from somebody that comes from a big town like me, uh, very many million living in Buenos Aires, to get the rules of some places or, or some of the things that are useful in the workspace. We won't say, we, I, I will not disclose my failings. But uh, you said, well, you know, what I have on you is that I come from this really small town. So that made you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who, how you came to be you. Yes. Well, I came from a small town. Uh, my brother was about 11 years older, so he, he was pretty much graduating from high school as I was entering school. So it was a small town everybody knew everybody so one of the rules i learned very quickly is don't say anything bad about anybody because you never know who they're related to so i tried to temper that and say if i can't say anything positive i just won't say anything that's right so that that is one of the things that made you very effective at the work that you do yes i think it really contributed Okay, what other things? One thing that medical students taught me was you have to look after yourself. You have to be true to yourself. You have to look at an opportunity and ask yourself, is, is this something I should do? Instead of just saying, yes, I'll do it. Medical students taught me that certainly there's a lot of work to do in medicine, but you also have to protect your own personal time. So we often had students who thought about, well, what am I going to do 
right after med school. Maybe I'm not ready to go to residency. Initially, I would have said that's the biggest mistake you'll ever make. Go into residency. But after being around medical students and talking with them, one person came in, I I want to take, I want to get my MPH after I finish third year. Then I want to come back and do fourth year and then graduate. Great idea. If that's what you want to do. Because you'll never have the opportunity to have that. Another person wanted to take a gap year and go to Europe. Great. If you want to do that. Because did you do that? The person did it. But did you do that with your own career? Did you allow yourself for those spaces? I did. I took time between my bachelor's and my master's. Nice. I took some time between my master's and my PhD. I investigated what I wanted to do and why I wanted to go to that program. To go to my doctorate, I wanted, I was, I was living in San Antonio. I was working at Fort Sam Houston at the time. I had pretty much a 7:30 to 4:30 job. It was all instruction. That was all I did, and so I could go to school. I could go to night school. So I got my master's at St. Mary's. Then I decided I want to get my got doctorate. I investigated a couple of programs. Uh, I eventually went to UT Austin because they didn't require that you live in the city for a semester. Mm -hmm. So I commuted back and forth, uh, made some great friends and really terrific connections up there. And really opened many avenues for me, uh, getting my doctorate. So I, I think it was definitely something that changed my career trajectory. Why educating physicians? We are not nice sometimes, particularly with people that are not physicians. We are difficult people to educate. I, you know it. Don't say it. It's fine. I, I said it. I said it. I said it out of my own kind. It's okay. It's. I found it to be the opposite. Really? I, f I found people who had PhDs, MDs, and they were scared to get up in front of a group. One person I worked with was teaching physiology. and didn't do a very good job of it because of anxiety. Got all sorts of things confused and the students, the course director called me after this person had taught us a class and he said, could you help this person? I just got 75 emails complaining about the last session. So the, only, the person only taught a couple of hours in the course, but uh, things were not going well. And this could have been a career ender. So 
I got with the person and worked, practice, got it down. Then we were going to do, this was when it was her time to teach again. And we went to the classroom and she was practicing. One of the students came in, I knew pretty well. So I asked her to come over and talk with us. So I asked her, what about this subject concerns you? What do you know well? What, what do you really want to learn? So then the person who was going to teach started a dialogue with her and got some really helpful information. So fast forward, it was a session in about a week. It came, she had one hiccup, but did really well. At the end of the class, the students stood up and applauded. Aww. Nice. And that was your doing. And, well, not, she, she put the effort into it. Yeah, yeah, I of course, of course. Yeah. Yes. But the, I met her in the hall, and I said, let's go get a video of the class, because they videoed all the classes. And then we'll sit down and look at it. She was crying. So I asked her, why are you crying? You did a great job. And she said, I never thought teaching could be this much fun. Aww. Yeah, yeah. So I saw that on you when you were helping me uh, a few years back, and you had this uh, thing in which you saw what I had and you saw what I didn't have, and you helped me get what I didn't have that was essential for that specific task. So how that came about in terms of, how did you find that this was your career? There must be a place, a place that you went like, ah, this is it. This is this is the one thing. I think I decided to stay in medical education because the people welcomed me. Hmm. They listened. I listened. And they were open to new ideas. Uh, at one place, I was good friends with all the course directors and the basic scientists and the clerkship directors. So I went around and I was saying happy holidays to people and there was, there was a guy who was grading certain undergraduate course that uh, trips up many students. Said, how are things going? Wish you happy holidays. And he said, This is the worst three week, three days of my life. Mm. Said, Why? He said, Well, I've written all these exams, and they only had like a hundred students, but they had used essay tests. Mm -hmm. So they had to get the grades in with a certain amount of time. And if they didn't, they'd be in real trouble with the registrar and then the dean. So I said, well, if, you know, I, I can't help you now, but if you're willing to entertain switching to a multiple choice exam, I guarantee you that we can have the grades posted by three o'clock. Hmm. 
on the day they take the exam. And they listen to you. Well, he had to. <laughs> he was desperate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was not him only. He was, there were five or six people grading the exam. Right, but what kept you with us, um, I'm guessing that was that, I, that idea that you had that I can help these people and they will listen to me. So the penetration of what you knew and that you could do for us and then the other side the, the other side that was listening to you yes so, so that kept you with the physicians right. the difficult people to teach that have uh, big egos and are highly competitive well i i think certainly they listen to I, you I, I had i had people who had big egos. but they listen to you that's yes. that's what you saw that they listen yeah. to you uh, so how do we make a gym for the future how did you get them to listen to you? Opportunity. You have, I learned it from my mentor at Arizona. He said when you do faculty development, either one-on-one -on -one or with a large group, give them information they can use the next afternoon or that morning. Applicability. Yes. Don't try to teach them all the theory. And that became your your thing. That's my mantra. Yeah, no, no, it, it is. When you were helping me, I always remember every time you know you will stop and think about it. So that is an effort that you do consciously. That whatever you say, you're gonna make a point, so I can use it the next time. Yes, it's it's like when you care for patients. Are you there to force your thoughts on them about what they should do or are you there to work with them and if you listen carefully to them you can hear what they need and then you have the tools if it's when you're within your grasp you can do it so listening and giving people practical guidance I remember one time there was a guy I worked with, and he went to a physician, and the physician said, man, you should get more exercise. Why don't you try jogging? He said, you know, if you tried to jog in my neighborhood, people would think you're nuts. So. Good advice, not applicable. Find out what the situation is find out what the person can do, what their options are, and they won't get nearly as frustrated. So, Dr. Tysinger, I think what I've been kind of hearing too from all this is you sound like you're a very intentional per person from even mentioning, you know, between like undergrad to master's investigating, like, you know, taking time to figure out what you want to do next and from master's to PhD figuring out and then also, it sounds like with the applicability, so you're very intentional about like what next steps you take, what advice you offer, how do you kind of learn to build that skill of you know giving advice with intention, figuring out what next steps you want to take with intention? Because um, I feel like for a lot of people, there's always like a, so many options that you can kind of get lost in everything, and you maybe don't know exactly what you need to share or what next steps you should look for. How do you kind of get, erase the noise and figure out what's 
what to share or what to do next? I try to strive for incremental change. And educational psychology is called shaping. And I read, I took a lot of courses in educational psychology. I learned about positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of research. I found a study from 1923 in the Journal of Educational Psychology, and it investigated which of those three, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, or punishment, changed behavior. Mm -hmm. Hands down, it was positive reinforcement. And you see that in patient care. Yeah. Talking with Dr. Hyann, he wants somebody to stop smoking. They make a contract. They come back in two weeks, the patient's dreading to see Dr. Hyann because they started smoking four days after the initial visit. Mm -hmm. So what does Dr. Hyam do? Does he tell the patient, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. I thought we had this down. You let me down. Does he say, I, I don't want to ever see you again. Mm -hmm. You can't follow directions. I want to fire you as a patient. No. He says, wow, you made it three days? That is fabulous. That took a lot of courage. That took a lot of, of work. That inspires me. Do you think we could, this time, shoot for five days? And patients respond in a positive way. Progression, not perfection. Exactly. Incremental change with lots of positive reinforcement. Do you feel like that's something that you, like at what point in your career did you figure out, I know in, you said that you kind of read research projects and everything, but in terms of, I'm sorry, in terms of teaching, um, at what point did you kind of notice like the most, like effect that this incremental change had on students? I read it when I was a student. I was at Fort Sam and I had a friend who had taken this course and right outside of Washington, D.C. It was on uh, essentially competence-based learning. And so I signed up for the course and I really liked it. After you completed, you had various modules you have, had to complete on paper. And then someone had to check you off. Okay. And they had a nice little map of the course in each module and how it was how it related to the other modules and I noticed that whenever they check me off I feel really good uh -huh. <laughs> and it was a self-paced course you could take three weeks to do it you could take a week well, I had a background in education, so initially there was there were two modules that sort of tripped me up because 
I was really into writing objectives and writing goals. And I didn't really believe so much in goals, but that was something they pushed. So after I got through those, well, I started to see the connection with everything else. So I could speed through modules and get checked off. It was great. And they would write a smiley face on my, <laughs> on my paper. So this was like throwing gasoline on a fire. Mm -hmm. Right, because you were already the person that wanted to, that had the empathy that wanted to do for others what you wanted done for you. Yes. And so I went through the course. I, I think I finished it in a week. Wow. And I went home. And so I'm going to try some of this stuff out. So I taught special forces aid men hmm. uh, drug math. Interesting. Dosage calculations. Mm -hmm. And I taught PA students inorganic chemistry. There's two stories about that. On the quizzes I gave, special forces, if they got 90 or above, I gave them a smiley face <laughs> on a parachute. Nah. They were parachutes. So most of the people in there were uh, pretty senior non-commissioned officers. So one time I miscounted and I didn't have enough stickers. Oops. So I, I handed them out and I had one guy, he was a pretty senior guy, so I, I apologized. Yeah, I just didn't make enough. So I went to my office, about 10 minutes later he's knocking on my door. Where's my sticker? Where's my sticker? <laughs> <laughs> How did you find that the stickers were the key? Because you, I saw you that every time you will find what the key is. And, and I have seen you uh, review my personal statement, for example, and it was more me that I could ever have written myself me. So you looked at what I wrote and you filtered it and it was me, more me. More me than I could have written. And, and I know that you do that for many people. And, and people just love you uh, and, and so how where did you get that way of filtering how do you do that because that's, a, that's an essential skill for what you have done for all of us for years right well I recall the conversations that you and I have had since you joined the faculty I remember you're talking about art uh -huh. and your family, uh -huh. caring for patients, your love of procedures. So I sort of put that in a big ball and picked out pieces that fit with your personal statement. Very nice, but I try to do that and I forget. And, and I'm sure that many people forget. So how do you do that? I mean, it's what, what is your, your, you must have something that we can kind of like learn as a method. The, I get it, the conversations with the person and everything, big memory, good empathy, wanting to do for others what you uh, want done for yourself. But I still, you know, I have 
I, I try many of those things and I still will forget everything that is being said in a conversation. They are witness to that. Uh, I mean, how do you do it? Where do you put all that information? I just have there must be a trick. There the, must be a trick. The first person I ever helped with a personal statement at the University of Arizona. I got a call late one afternoon. It was the associate dean of students. He said, I've got a guy in my class. I've been helping him with his personal statement for two hours. We've had no progress. Would you talk to him? So I knew a little bit about personal statements. I had worked on some before. So the guy came in, and he sat for, I told, I told him, tell me about yourself. So he said, well, I haven't done research. I haven't uh, traveled outside the country. I haven't belonged to any clubs uh, here, any interest groups. It was uh, about five minutes of this is what I haven't done. Oh, good gracious, this guy he can't be helped. So I said, well, you know, I don't care about what you haven't done. Tell me about you. So he grew up on this ranch in Idaho. It was about two hours outside of town. He was the oldest of 13 kids. This was in the days of no satellite TV. Uh, they couldn't even pick up the FM or AM stations where they lived. They lived out in the country. At age six, he started feeding the animals. By nine, he was suturing lacerations and uh, taking, he started an immunization program from the ranch. Then, by 13, he was supervising his brothers and sisters as they were doing things. He was the oldest. And he was delivering colts, he was delivering calves. He had to get up at about four in the morning to do his chores and get ready to go to, to school because it was a long drive into town. And when he came back, it was dark and he had to do chores. The barn was a quarter of a mile away. It was snowy, it was rainy. So you look for all the patterns, yeah, yeah, the, all said, these patterns to help him say something positive about himself, and he had a lot after you looked at them. Right, you know, he, he said, I'm married, I have two kids. Uh, as soon as I leave class, I go home. I haven't joined any special interest groups. I had to work the summer after medical school to make money. I said, okay. Let's write your personal statement. So in 30 minutes, we had his personal statement. He applied to 13 programs. He got interviews at 13, and he matched in his first choice. Nice. Why? Well, yeah. Kind of reframing that. Yeah, reframing, right? Reframing, looking for a pattern. But why? So what I saw you do for years is you look at these patterns, and you're trying to present us in a light that is true, actually, which is the most useful part of things that we don't see uh, of ourselves. Why help 
in that way how how did it come to be that you said oh okay this is this is my line I, I can see the patterns and I can help these people present themselves in a different way so they can advance how did you come out with that because that's the way that I see what you have done for everybody for years and years and you have to have the patience of the same to read all those personal statements that suck <laughs> suck don't look at me that way. No, with you know, uh, for the for whoever is listening, he's looking at me with compassion, with the compassion of a person that had read thousands. Well, why why help these guys as a group advance? Because there must be something that motivates you to do that. It's not about you advancing. It's all about about all of us just finding that thing that makes us go farther. Well, I in that competency-based learning course I took, I saw the light. When I went to that course, my philosophy was, and I, I taught PA students, special forces aid men, pharmacy tech students, and I viewed it as my responsibility to keep people from graduating who didn't have the competencies to do the job. When I went to that course, I saw if you break down things and you teach things right, most people will learn. I've been in medical schools since 1985. I never saw one medical student who wanted to fail. Right, right. I've never seen one resident who didn't want to fail or who wanted to fail. They all want to succeed. Everybody wants to succeed. Yeah, I was saying people don't want to have problems. Right. So my philosophy changed. My job is to help you any way I can so that you can know what you need to do to do the job. So if I can help you write a personal statement, and I've helped maybe, maybe a thousand or so people with theirs, that's something I have plenty of practice in, like you do suturing. So I can help people with writing. I can't help people with suturing, though. The curious thing is, though, to me, that you didn't see it as uh, you detecting what was their problem in filtering those that were not going to make it. You decided early, everybody's going to make it. I'm going to break it down for them. I can see it. Well, after the course, I just realigned my thinking. My job is not to fail people. It's to help people succeed. And that changed my whole philosophy in dealing with people. But we know that this was early in a few years back. So that was not the philosophy there and then. Not, oh. not necessarily the philosophy, the cultural thing. Everything was about who was the, the, the who, who was the more alpha and, and who was the strongest. And, and it was a, a culture of filtering, of not letting people get there if they didn't have the right stuff. But you decided that the opposite. You decided, no, I need to, I can see it. I, I'm going to break them down. Nobody fails on my watch. Yes, so I, and I... This is now mainstream, but it wasn't there. Oh, no. The, the other thing I, that helped me with the basic scientists, course directors, and the, the clerkship directors, 
was helping them on evaluation. Uh, some of their exams were just terrible. Just like I told you about the guy who was grading the essays. Much to his credit, he said, I'm willing to learn. So I had a friend who was a psychometrician, and we gave them sessions on writing multiple choice exams, relating it to the material they taught. They, taught. they got on board. Fast forward, it's December the next year. They gave the exam in the morning. My friend, the psychometrician, scored all the results. At a little past three, because they had thrown, they decided to throw out some items. At a little past three, I took the final list of grades up. This is it. And he said, I can't believe I can go home. <laughs> He said, but that's not the best thing. And I thought, what could be better than that? Mm -hmm. And he said, I just got emails from about half the class telling me how much they liked the exam and how fair they thought it was. <laughs> so he went on to be uh, recognized as one of the best teachers in the medical school. So it sounds like to me, also, Dr. Seisinger, it's like not so much that you find problems, but I think you give people clarity, maybe to things that they, like the solution is there, and I think you just kind of aid in giving clarity to people. And in that way, I feel like you're very much a problem solver for very many people. But was there like a something that you grew up doing that led you to like being a problem solver? I feel like a lot of people that kind of have that gift had to deal with you know, creating clarity for situations kind of before you got an opportunity to kind of do that for others. I'm not sure I can put my finger on anything specific about learning to be a problem solver, but I enjoy solving problems. And I became pretty good at it. Hell yeah. So <laughs> that's one of the things I noticed if have a problem, keep cool. Okay. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. Think of your options. Weigh the pros and cons of each option. And then select one, go for it, and don't second guess yourself. In short, trust yourself. If you need help, get it. And don't be ashamed to ask for help. Because if, if you're in medical school and you're ashamed to ask for help, you're not going to thrive. And you also have to admit you don't know everything. So that's where you tap into people like your mentor to help you think through things. So. But that was not the culture, I, and again, granted, um, I come from another place, right? 
But that was not the culture in the 80s and 90s. I'm, I'm sure that you had mentors that were on the other side. They were uh, about, okay, these guys don't have what it takes. We have to filter people. We don't need all this collaboration. You don't need to get everybody through. Uh, some of them are not going to make it. All that negative thinking was not there, or maybe I experienced something because I come from a different culture, maybe here, so it was already thriving. But nowadays, it's all mainstream, this collaborative leadership that you exert all the time, right? Well, it's, I was in one place, and the students basically revolted in the ah. family medicine clerkship. Ah. This is the story. And it was interesting because I made friends with the clerkship director. It was soon after I arrived at the place. So the person called me into the office one day and said, the students went to the dean complaining about the clerkship. Which was not common in those days. It was not common. So I said, well, what was the issue? because I wasn't that familiar with the clerkship. And the person said, well, we write our exam starting from scratch for every rotation. And I thought, gee whiz, you can't be doing that. There's a national board exam. I had talked to most of the other clerkship directors and they all use the NBNB shelf exam. So I said, you know, you're just beating yourself with a stick, and now the students are mad. <laughs> so you you have to say, you know, I've thought about this. I'm going to go with the shelf exam. So there was this big meeting they invited me to. The students were there, the department chair was there, and the clerkship director. So the clerkship director wisely stood up and. I've heard what you say, we're going to go to the shelf exam. It made all the students happy. And they went to the exam. Students did well. It was a good clerkship and excellent didactics. You have to look at what's going to save you time and energy and produce a good product. In this case, it was the NBME exam. And it, it's something the students were used to. The, uh, the exam they were using had a poor reliability. Uh, who passed and who failed, it was like flipping a coin. So, and it, they were shocked at the amount of time it saved them from writing those exam items every single rotation. Why they didn't see it? They thought they could do better. Uh -huh. So similarly, I mean, it seems to me, kind of the success stories of what you've you've had have had the common denominator of someone who's willing to accept the change or or, or be open to the concept that there is improvement. How do you confront the opposite situation? You know, what have you had instances where, say, students have come to you with an issue with with what's going on, and the individual who needs the change is not open or receptive. What do you do there? You listen, you try to help as much as possible, 
but you realize that what the person's doing isn't going to help them and isn't going to help patients in the future. So you do what you can and you tell them this exhausts what I can do. Mm -hmm. And I wish you luck and if there's anything you want to come back and talk to me about, I'm very willing. But right now, I just exhausted all my ideas. Recognizing your own limit. Right. Instead of talking about the limit of the other one. Right. Just saying. Uh, that's yeah. I remember one time that you did for me. We were having a conversation about this and you told me, well, you know, this person cannot do this change. And you have to recognize that. So recognizing, but you put it again, this, see, I cannot even put it the way that you put it when I'm telling you what you did. So that's how tricky it is what you do. That you put it, I have no ideas. I remember that phrase of yours. I really don't have any more ideas of how you can help this change, Chris. But you put it on you. Yeah. But you and me, we knew that it was in this other person. So that is very interesting. I think that that's a key. I think it's a lot like working with patients. You talk with them, you have a relationship, and they want to change, but they need some help. They're at a stage where they're willing to accept it. And that's where you can step in and help. Whether it's with a faculty member, a resident, or a medical student. When they're ready and they're willing to listen and try some things, not, no guarantee of success, but this is what I think will work. And then you help them right. and you intervene. But when they are not there, the curious part to me is that you say, well, I ran out of ideas to help you. Instead of saying, you're not where you should be. It also sounds like it goes back to what you said about living in a small town. Like, you don't have anything nice to say. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just yeah. shut up. Just right. But on that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you recall, but you did help me for my personal statements for residency. Yeah. And, and you were one of the 1,000 that he did not want to read, but well, he kindly but did. I was also one of the ones who initially didn't want to listen because um, I had written was just a beautiful personal statement. <laughs> but you have, you know, it, it was in the vein of, if you don't have something nice to say, you said, Jordan, this is, this would be a wonderful piece as something to submit for, you know, creative review or in a journal for, for like, you know, not, not a journal article, but a, uh, I can't, I can't like, a, like, like an a, editorial. Like an editorial, an essay, uh, but a creative one. Uh, this is not going to get you into a residency, and it didn't. It didn't. I didn't match my first year, and and so that's. I came to you initially not wanting to listen, but you framed it in that this is good as one thing. It is. It, it, you you retained the value of that, um, but said it's not good as this object that you need it to be. Let's look at these characteristics that we have. Like you said, gathering these other things, and let's let's move into something that will be. That will accomplish the objective that you have. Jordan found the pattern, and now we know what a gym is. So that same pattern, you never take away the value. Mm. 
I had awful ideas. And you will say, awful, awful ideas that was not going to work and just get us in trouble. And you'll say like, yeah, well, you know, yes, that idea will work with this and that, but here maybe we want to do this other thing. So you didn't take away my idea or my value. You said, but the other day you said this, and this will fit better here. So that's the key, not taking away the value. You just see, okay, this doesn't have value here. But you don't say, well, this doesn't have value. This doesn't have value here. It has value here. Wow. Wow. That's a bit. Oh, wow. Yeah. And sometimes what people Good will, write, will give you insight that they haven't caught yet. Mm -hmm. I reviewed one personal statement. The person was applying to uh, internal medicine. Use phrases like quick results. Didn't emphasize anything about relationships with patients, continuity of care. So I read it about five times. I told the person, you know, this isn't an internal medicine personal statement. You talk more like a surgery than a personal statement. And the person looked at me and said, you know, I've been debating wow. which one I wanted to go into. And I think I, I said what I wanted to do. I just had the wrong specialty. They wrote their own answer. Yeah. And she went on, got in the residency program, did great. So it was, and I, I uh, was in the cafeteria one time. This was when she was a PGY4. Came in, how are things going? Great, I love what I do. So and that makes you happy. I can see that. that, I can see that, I always, every time that I talk to you, I, I said the same thing, which was, I can see how you get the happiness, the benefit from what you do, which is you figure out the stuff, and to you, uh, that game, which is not a game because you're, you're helping the person, uh, gives you that extra, uh, your kick, I think that you get from figuring out things that we don't figure out even out of ourselves and just modifying it just a little bit enough that it will work. Yes. Who was like that in your family? Was your father, your mom? Well, actually, they were both that way. Very nice. Wilson and then didn't give a whole lot of guidance, but sort of shaped behavior. But this was not, I, I, I'm going to keep insisting on this, this was not how you were educated. Uh, yes, by your family, but then not uh, by mainstream no. academics. No. No. So you came out with your own line that yes. worked. Yes. That actually made a bunch of people succeed. You know, you're loved by people, loved by people. Love, you're always present somehow, you know, everybody that needs help, well, why don't you go and talk to Dr. Taxinger? The other day, you know, one of our residents, oh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, well, you have a problem with this, go and talk to Dr. Taxinger. You saw the email. Sure. <laughs> By the way, thank you. Yes. For everything. But that's, I get a lot of satisfaction. There was a resident. Yeah, that's your kick, right? Yeah. There was Helping a, the other people. 
It was a resident who scored, I think, at the second percentile on the first in-training exam. So, came in, suggested a few tweaks to the study plan. Person scored at the 35th percentile next year, third year at the 55th percentile, and then on the certification exam, which at that time it was in November, not uh, in April, scored at the 72nd percentile. Wow. So that's the sort of step Dr. Nato wants people to have. Where did you get this ability of waiting? Because you know many of the things that you do are progression, not perfection. But you have this skill on waiting on the person, waiting on the person, and sometimes for years, and just waiting on the person, waiting for the next year, waiting for, where is that coming from? Again, mom, dad, who? Both. It's just a, You, maybe? Patience? That's the value of a continuity relationship whether you're in medicine or education. If you know the person... You can wait them out. You can, you can wait them out because they're gonna develop into something really positive. So it's a, it's a way of looking at the person as something that is gonna develop, We're all gonna developing improve. people. We're all developing people. <laughs> no one's perfect. No one's attains perfection yet. So you have to internalize, I'm the same way. I'm no better than the person sitting in front of me. If I can help this person, that'll be great. And I usually, think that that's the key. If I can help this person, that's gonna be great. That's yes. a big motivation of yours. Yes, I'm, I'm here to help people. I'm not here to fail people or to make them feel bad. Not here to chew them out. Even when I was a clerkship director and there were students who didn't do what they were supposed to do, it was always, I saw it as an opportunity to help them learn and not to get mad, not to get upset. As a faculty member, you can't get mad or upset. You have to keep your cool and keep your direction. Did you get one of those when you were growing up in your career and you proved them wrong? Like, did you have that satisfaction of seeing somebody that was already faculty and was already set in their ways and then they saw the, the, your way as a better way after you showed them the results? I've had that experience multiple times. We, in one course, started a review of the exams and they had all the people from that course, all the faculty who taught around a large table. And some of them were writing questions that were really esoteric. They were just going from minutia that really didn't relate very well with medicine. The exams were poorly, uh, students typically did poorly on the exam. They were dissatisfied with the course because of it, and the course director wanted to do better. So we started the reviews. And one of the things people found out was, in some cases, the people in respiratory were teaching things that were counter to what the people in uh, 
cardiovascular we were teaching. Hmm. And it made him aware that, wow, you know, we really need to talk. In one case, we would sit around, I attended the meetings, the course director would randomly choose somebody to answer the question. Everybody had the exam that was going to be used, and this was the final review. And sometimes people would get up and go to the restroom when a question was coming. <laughs> he would just wait until they got back. His basic strategy was, if you as a physiologist can't answer the question, then why are we asking medical students that question? So the, the exam became much more clinically oriented. They started using clinical vignettes. Right, utility. They, they really focused on what people needed to know, not some of the esoteric details that people would forget in two weeks anyway. Absolutely. So the course became popular, the, the students gave it good ratings, the exams really identified the people who needed help. Mm -hmm. Most of the students did really well. So it was a win-win situation. Very nice. You change a bunch of lives. I, I have a, a, a very outsider perspective of, of the military, but how was this kind of technique received for you in your military experience? Excellent question. Um, you know, at, from what I think, perceive, see of, of military education and teaching is not necessarily the calm redirection model, but it would be more of the, the catching in a mistake and chewing out. Um, one, is that even accurate? Or two, you know, how was this implemented or received for you in the military? Well, after I took the competency-based course, I came back and implemented in a course I directed. It was called the Pharmacy Sterile Products course. We taught people how to make up ophthalmic and IV solutions, anything dealing with sterile products. We worked in this airflow hood that was super filtered making, we had to use aseptic technique. So initially we had a 12% failure rate in the course. So I, I taught the math portion and I developed program instruction booklets to cover all the different topics. Instead of teaching it there when they came, we sent it out. And we found that went really well. So we said, okay, let's send them the exam. So we had their boss to give them the exam. They mailed it back, graded. Most of them did really well. Occasionally somebody didn't do very well at all. So we, we told the boss, hey, we sent the material. They either didn't get it or it wasn't what they needed at their level. So we recommend they not come. So gradually people got it. So they came, they could finish the two-week course in a week. Mm -hmm. the, the chief of the pharmacy branch told the colonel in charge of medicine and surgery, and he reported it to the commandant of the, 
they call it the Academy of Health Sciences. It's now the Medical Field Service School, I think. So he was fascinated by it. We gave all the division chiefs a briefing. So at the end, there was a, the general was there, and there was a person who had a, who was in charge of a course that a lot of people failed. He leaned back in his chair and he pointed at him directly in the face and said, you've got a 15% failure rate. What are you doing to improve it? Because every time somebody failed, that was a slot that was taken away. Mm -hmm. And they were needed. They were, the Army doesn't train people to be altruistic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. They want them to be able to do the job. So we looked at ours. We had common calculations that they were supposed to do. We heavily weighted that. Mm -hmm. We had some other calculations they would do occasionally. We took less weight on that. So we focused on what they knew. One lady, uh, I had a friend who taught in the course. He was reassigned to a different place, North Carolina. Lo and behold, I mean, he was teaching the people there how to do it, but they had to get come to our course to get certified. So the lady came, she had just been married, she was taking courses. So this was our first guinea pig. She had the technique down. She was fast, she was efficient, she was smart. So Thursday afternoon, I watched her prepare an IV and she was just flawless. I said, you're doing really well. You know, what are your plans for this weekend and you're gonna finish the course next week? She started crying. Well, you know, I've just been married for three months. I miss my husband. Uh, I'm getting behind in my courses. I thought, you know, why should she stay here? She can graduate this week. She already has a technique. So I tell you what, I'll give you the exam tomorrow morning. You pass the three products. You're out of here. And she said, would you do that? Sure. I mean, I, it's a competency-based course. But we, we told people, look, stay here for two weeks in San Antonio, enjoy yourself. And if, if you have all your products made, uh, you can take a day off, two days off. Come in, take the exam on Friday morning, then you're out. Why not give her the exam now? Did, she passed. She was happy. So we cut the attrition rate. We started graduating people in a week instead of two weeks. That made the Army happy. They didn't have to pay their way or give them extra money. Efficiency, yeah. Yeah, and it went over really well. They accepted you because they couldn't argue with the results. 
if you have the outcomes, people can't argue with you. Absolutely. So they were not about collaboration, but they couldn't argue with the results. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it would be ideal to have a 100% pass rate because they're investing the time and money in this person to go through this. Yes. So why, why would you want to set it up for failure in the first place? You want to set it up to, to achieve those goals, to and achieve they were the objectives. And then once that's satisfied, why spend more time? If they have achieved those objectives, then and, and then there, there was there was a person. I also taught uh, drug math for the nurse anesthetist course, and there was a person who, for some reason, transformed numbers. If if I said, for example, 178, that person would write 187. So we identified the issue, and the person didn't initially pass and we worked on it and we worked on it and it wasn't attitude it wasn't motivation but there is a learning disability where people do that at the time that wasn't really well known so I had extensive we had to counsel people and write up notes and I had about five pages of notes that the person signed and I emphasized motivated, wants to improve, just can't, there's something going on I don't understand and, it, and it's not motivation or, or intelligence. This is an intelligent individual. So in order to have that person removed from the course, they had to have uh, a panel of officers investigate. So they looked at my notes and they put the person in a position that the numbers would not be a problem, but out of the course. Mm -hmm. I also had an individual who didn't pass the course, and I think it was the same issue, but I didn't know enough at the time about that. And so the person came and apologized. So people want to do well. We just have to help them as much as we can. We can't guarantee success, but we can do our part. Very nice. Well, good. Anything else? Thanks for having me. Oh, that was, this is always awesome. Thank you. Lots to think about. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Tyson. Thank you. Thank you, guys.